A new documentary called There Are No Fakes explores what the filmmaker says could be the largest art fraud scam in Canadian history. It's a film that details both artistic and physical crimes. Joining me in the studio are director Jamie Kastner and one of the film subjects, uh, Bare Naked Ladies multi-instrumentalist uh, Kevin Hearn. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you all. Uh, so before we get to the movie, uh, you guys have known one another for a long time. You've known one another since high school. You played in a band together. What was the name of the band and what did they sound like? We were called Naked Brunch. Mm. Uh, we performed for, for one show only because <laughs> I think it might have been too cosmically powerful right. if we had uh, just, it was fine for us, but we were worried about the universe. <laughs> and I think that one show was four songs. <laughs> we did Velvet Underground, Foggy Notion, right? Lou Reed, Perfect Day. Yeah. I think we did Money by Pink Floyd and something else. <laughs> wow, this was that's in a, high school. kind of an ambitious uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, set list. Golden Brown by the Stranglers, well, perhaps? That's right. Yeah. He he played all the complicated stuff, <laughs> right. and I sang all the monotone stuff. Right, right, right. We had a division of, um, you could say talents, but maybe tasks <laughs> would be more, more uh, accurate. And, and so Lou Reed, I mean, you were, ended up being Lou Reed's musical director How for many years. How annoying is that, years. by the way? That we we so play in a band. Nobody he goes on to makes play with Lou that Reed. kind of jump. <clears throat> it's surreal to me even yeah. now. You know, I had Lou's a photo up in my locker all through high school, and I sort of discovered so much through his music. I felt even without meeting him, he taught me so much, yeah. and I felt like I... I knew him because I, I just collected every single thing I could find that he'd recorded. So when I actually met him, um, it, was, uh, it was an amazing thing. And to have him invite me to New York eventually, and, and the way he put it was, let's see if we can play together. <laughs> and, so, and, and then for seven years you did. Yes, I did. And uh, he, uh, he made me his band leader. Yeah. That, I mean... Uh, I just saw the in New York the underground uh, uh, the Velvet Underground show that was playing and it's film clips and 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 ephemera lots of photographs and all sorts of stuff um, that I'd never seen before and it really gave me uh, I love those records anyway but it gave me an even broader and deeper understanding of of just how important they are. Yes, you know they always say uh, only twenty five people bought the record bought those records, but all of those people went on and started their own bands. And that's what gave us punk rock and everything else that came afterwards. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess you probably saw the connection between Lou and Andy Warhol. Yeah, and of course. Who knows if they had not connected what the story would have been. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, a, it, it's an incredible thing. Were you uh, able to get over being a fan? Did you sometimes look across the stage and go, holy crap, that's Lou Reed, still. <laughs> oh, it happened all the time, yeah. but he knew that, you know, and yeah. he played with that with me, and uh, we were friends. He kind of treated me like a son, right. you know, and, and every show he would come over and say something to me, and, uh, you know, so there I am, and just as you said, I'd be like, I can't believe this is amazing, <laughs> and then here he comes, always, oh, what's he going to say tonight? And he'd say stuff like, one night he'd say, Kevin, that's too smart. Dumb it down a bit, you know? <laughs> and then the next night he'd come over and he'd say, you know, I'm, I'm really getting into a guitar solo. And uh, he comes over and he goes, stand up straight. 
<laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then a, another night he come over, and I go, oh, here he comes. What's he going to say today? He goes, I could not do this without you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So to have him say that to you while you're playing with him, that's pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. Uh, we're here to talk about There Are No Fakes, so that we're going to talk about lots of stuff. Uh, there Are No Fakes is this new documentary, and Jamie, uh, I've seen all your other docs. This one feels a little different uh, than your other work. Mm -hmm. There's no recreations. There's It, it is uh, a pretty straightforward telling of a story. It's procedural, and then in the second hour becomes something else again. Yes. Uh, but tell me uh, a little bit about uh, Norvell Morisot. I think we have to understand, you know, his place in art history so that we understand uh, what makes the rest of the story so interesting and significant. Sure. Uh, and, you know, Kevin, who has obviously collected his work for a long time, should, we'll, we'll should get jump there. in. We'll get there. The, the um, basically, he is... He was as one of the as one of the subjects in in the film puts it. He is the art. He is the artist who took indigenous art from the gift shop to the gallery. Mm -hmm. He was the he was the the first uh, uh, indigenous artist to get a, a major commercial gallery show in the early '60s, and he went on to become um, Canada's most important indigenous artist. I think it's fair to say he's considered that. And and one of our most important artists, period, in that he created an entire uh, school of art, which is more than can be said, in fact, of the group of seven. He created what's what's known sometimes as the Woodland School, uh, a world of, of creatures and, and visual figures that are, are drawn from uh, Anishinaabe myth. <clears throat> and it was the first time that they had been represented in painting in this way and then and then exhibited in commercial galleries and he and he led uh, um now it's quite controversial at the time right mm -hmm. right he because received a lot of flack even from within the, yeah. the indigenous community because it was seen as sort of sacred right and and so even if you don't know the name you've seen the art when so you yes. when you think of of quote unquote native art the, the image that would come to mind are, are pro is, is probably something derived from Morrison. There are thick black lines, colorful paintings, or yeah. colorful characters um, within... Kevin, you're, you're, you're uh, the expert here, have, owning someone. Sure. Well, the first time I saw his work um, was on Bruce Coburn's album cover, mm -hmm. um, Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws. Um, Norval, uh, of course, was one of the young people who was taken to residential schools, but he had said in interviews that he um, was influenced by the stained glass windows, that he, he loved them, and that's one, th one thing that he took from that. With the thick black lines, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, me growing up uh, Roman Catholic and singing in the choir, uh, I certainly had an affinity for those as well, and I think perhaps that's what resonated uh, with me uh, when I was a kid, you know, the colors, mm -hmm. and um, yes. Well, and you bought a painting called Spirit Energy of Mother Earth. Uh, where did you buy it? When did you buy it? And why <laughs> is it worth $20,000 to you? At the time, uh, you know, I grew up middle class. Uh, I loved his painting, but I never dreamed I, I would be able to own one. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, 
the band I was in, Bare Naked Ladies, and I'm still in, uh, had some success. And I'd gone through a whole uh, process. I had a bone marrow transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, it took, it was like a five year recovery. And in that time, the band had done so well, but I was still living in a renting a little cruddy apartment in Parkdale. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I got better, I thought, okay, it's time to start. Uh, I'm going to. I've re- got money and I'm going to enjoy. Yeah, I'm going to build a new life. Yeah. I'm going to get a new place. I'm going to decorate it and be happier. And yes. It, well, it's interesting. I, I had cancer five years. It was six years ago, oh. five years clear now. And uh, it changed absolutely everything in my life. My perspective on everything. And I mean top to bottom. Work life, work life balance, my relationship with my then girlfriend, now wife. Everything changed. And I think that sounds like what happened to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. It is It is something that uh, I, 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 I wrote a, a series about it. Uh, that was on ctvnews.ca because I was trying to figure out a way to express it to people because I still don't, uh, I, I can't tell you how uh, overwhelming it is when it happens. Mm-hmm. And and you uh, clearly understand. So, sure. and, and this Norvell Morriso was part of that for you. Yeah, and I also think it doesn't happen and then it everything changes. It, it It's sort of like a slow motion mm-hmm. shock, you know. Right. It, sometimes it takes years to readjust and, and realize, no, I'm not that person I was, but... Yeah. Now I can be this person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's sort of a wonderful transformation in some ways, although uh, bittersweet, perhaps. Absolutely. Well, I always say that the worst thing that ever happened to me turned out to be one of the better things in in the fullness of time, yes. I think. So you have this painting. It's gorgeous. It's called The Spirit Energy of Mother Earth. And uh, the AGO says, "Well, I'd like to. We, we'd like to hang this here. You're, you've got some interesting pieces. Sure. And, can I can I backtrack sure. just a little yeah, bit? Just because yeah. you asked where I bought it. Oh, yeah. 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 I was aware. You know, I thought, who can I put in my place? Ah, oh, Norvell Morrison. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'd heard. Be careful. There's there's fakes out there. Right. Um, don't buy online, for instance. Right. So I looked up." Which galleries sell Norval Morriso galleries? And this gallery came up, Mas- Maslach and McLeod Gallery, owned by Joe McLeod. It was in Yorkville, around the corner from my friend Pat Feely's gallery. So I went there and, you know, Joe presented himself as someone who knew Norval. He had lots of paintings up. He also had paintings by Norval's son, Christian and so I got this feeling, oh, this is a safe place. Seems uh, legit. Yeah. And I even said to Joe, like, I've read that there's fakes out there and I have to be careful. And he said, well, you've come to the right place. This is the safest place to buy a Norval Morriso painting. There Are No Fakes uh, began after you bought a Norval Morriso painting which turned out after it hung at the AGO to to have a dodgy provenance they they <laughs> they they suggested that it was a fake you had paid a great deal of money for this and uh that's sort of when Jamie comes into the picture here in some way yeah. right i mean if if we we kind of had things things were had gotten into uh, uh, the realm of litigation with mm-hmm. between Kevin and and uh, the gallery owner who who sold it to him and as that was developing, uh, uh, we crossed paths again, mm-hmm. somewhat at random. I had uh, um, 
gotten in touch with Kevin <clears throat> as as we discussed. Kevin and I had played in this band briefly, and we were both big Lou Reed, Lou Reed fans. Yeah. He, of course, had a whole relationship with with Lou, uh, um, you know, musically and and as good friends. And uh, after after Lou passed away. Uh, a couple of years later, it occurred to me that it might be it might be interesting to talk about doing a documentary project uh, about Lou with Kevin, mm-hmm. and so we got we got in touch. I got back in touch uh, um, around around that idea, and uh, and Kevin it was not in the cards yeah. at that at that time that particular project. But Kevin said, "Well, I'm involved in this other story and this court case, and uh, this might be of interest to you." And it, so we're at the beginning of this court case, but for me, this is where it just, it starts to take these twists and turns. Uh, there are people who are very invested in the idea that the paintings that they own are not fakes. And I mean, I get the thrill of buying a piece of art, mm-hmm. you know, an actual thing, a real thing that the artist had touched and you, it, it feels organic and there's a much different kind of feel to it than, than buying a print or buying a poster or something like that. I get that. And they can be very expensive. But you would also want to hope that the piece that you have is legitimate. And yeah. there's a whole world, it seems to me, that I saw. Mm-hmm. In fact, somebody in the film says, well, there are no fakes. Uh, Hence the a lo- title. A lot of people. Yeah. Of and so what is it? What is it? What, why is it that people are so invested in it? Is it just simply the money-making opportunities that these movies or these uh, these paintings present? Uh, I believe so. I think if you're you're looking at these works as a way to make money, mm-hmm. then they better be real. Yeah. Um, and how can yeah. you tell if they're real or not? How can you tell a, a fake? Well, there, we, there we are, should, I'm sorry. We should just maybe mention that that you know once Kevin dipped his toe in, in, or began to have doubts about his own painting, I think he found himself in short order in the middle of, of a kind of raging feud yeah. between, between factions of people who were, who were at daggers drawn over the issue of whether uh, uh, not just Kevin's painting, but a whole tranche of Morisot's work was real or not. And we're talking, to put this in perspective, about roughly 3,000 paintings worth, worth you know, conservatively... Ten thousand dollars each, so that's thirty million dollars worth worth of art. Yeah. You see, I I walked away from the gallery, and yeah. I said I can just walk away from this, get on with my life. Yeah. But wait, perhaps I should really investigate this and and see what the truth might be. Um, I didn't have a photograph of someone else painting this painting, so right. to build my case, I had to investigate and I had to go meet people, and and through that process, I learned that this went beyond art fraud. Right. And and that's sort of when I met Jamie and said, you're not going to believe what I'm going through. And, and I didn't. <laughs> I did not believe the story when, when Kevin first told it to me, because there are so many twists and turns that go from really sort of darkly comical because some of the characters involved in this feud are like out of a Coen Brothers movie, You would right? not believe that they are not performing for the camera mm-hmm. when you, you see it. You can't write this stuff. Yeah. It, it's, you know? ju- it's honestly, when you asked earlier about, about the sort of uh, uh, more si- the greater simplicity of form yeah. in, the, in this film, I mean, I do tend to like to let the subject matter dictate mm-hmm. the form. And in this case, it's kind of what you hope for most in documentaries, in, in the ones that, my kind of documentaries anyway, 
which is starting with incredible, an incredible story and incredible larger-than-life characters. Well, you, you, in, a, you, in a film that, that focuses a light on cultural exploitation, mm-hmm. having one of the main characters' last name being White... You know, it's like added bonus. Listen, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. But but but, but you do cast a documentary. You do cast. You're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. You do. I mean, be, like anything else, there's a lot of choices to be made about. You know, there there are as as relatively complex and sort of chock full of characters and twists and turns as this film is. There are about tenfold. Uh, characters and stories and and roads and alleys that we might have gone down, and it was it was you have to you know be kind of vicious almost mm-hmm. in your decision making of kind of going. You've got to to give something that the audience can can follow and keep track of. At the very heart of this is a painting that that Kevin bought. Uh, turned out to uh, not be real, to be a fake, and this documentary is about that. Were there any grand rules between the two of you? Because you were involved in a lawsuit, and normally, you know, the the line is, we can't discuss this because it's, uh, you know, in court right now. Well, we we were friends, of course. We had known each other from from high school, and and uh, you know, I wouldn't say we were in touch all in 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 all the intervening years, mm-hmm. but I I certainly think it was we were we we were and remain friends, yeah. and uh, um, Kevin came to me with this story, and and you know, I am uh, uh, a journalist first. And it was important, uh, I think, for for all sorts of reasons to to you know proceed with the same kind of standards that I that I do with with all my work. And and at a certain point, as yeah. as at a certain point as uh, we, I thought I, I began to look into it and see that this incredible story that Kevin told me, you know, r- really did seem to be real, as as unbelievable as it as it first as it sounded at first, not that I doubted you. It's just, it's, it, I didn't. I, I mean, it's not that. It's just, it's so much I to, understand. To I process. totally understand. Um, yep. And, um, but I said, you know, if, if, I'm, if we're to proceed, <clears throat> uh, I, you can't have, you, Kevin, can't have any editorial control. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be, you know, a, a piece with journalistic integrity. I'm going to talk to both sides. Everybody is going to get a fair shake in this. And I think that is the strongest way to to proceed with this story. And I fully supported that. Yeah. I from the get go, I was always open to, and wanting to know the truth. Um, as you asked before, why are all these people so obsessed about yeah. it? And I wanted to know, mm-hmm. but I couldn't go talk to those people. And Jamie could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What was your reaction? And it must have just it must have felt like the bottom of your stomach hit the floor when they said, oh, we think this painting's a fake. Yeah, I felt... Because it had hung in your house for a number of years by that point. Yes. I often had a, a feeling about it, you know? I, I know, Not to sound new agey, but yeah. I, I, I couldn't feel an energy from it that I, I, I wanted to. <laughs> right, right. And when I found out, I was like, huh, okay, that's disappointing. Um, here I am. What a goof. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, the lawsuit happens, and uh, we won't give it away, I don't think. I mean, it's a matter of public record, but it's in the film. The lawsuit happens. The second half of this film, though, the, the tone changes a great deal. And I don't want to really give away what happens in the second half of the film, but I think we should just touch on the idea that it turns out that there are, in fact, a lot of fakes of Morisot's work out there. I have to there. change the title now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that there was 
the, uh, can I can I say one sure. thing about yeah. my court case? Oh it, yeah, is that a judge did find and did believe that that I had proven there is a fraud ring, right? And that was a huge step in this story, right? It, it opens up. But your painting was outside of that fraud. Well, basically, he, in, in my opinion, he acknowledged that there is a poison tree, right. but he was unwilling to say that this apple right below the tree was poison as well, right. Right. which, you know, I'll stop talking. It's a little frustrating. I'm sure it's a little frustrating for you. A little. I'm going to turn into the Hulk and <laughs> smash the studio. <laughs> We'll move on then. Okay. Uh, so, so you, at the point at which we find out that there was a fraud ring, um, did you understand that the story was changing at that point? The story that is that the story that you set out to tell? I had an inkling from from you know what what Kevin and and uh, and his lawyer Jonathan told me uh, at the outset of where this story was leading. But as I say, it was it was so full of incredible twists and turns that, to be perfectly honest, I did not believe it until I act completely believe it until I actually got on site and spoke, met, started meeting the people myself, and speaking to people myself, and I think that that uh, things were discovered even beyond. Uh, uh, wouldn't you say, Kevin, even beyond what, what Kevin, mm-hmm. you know, what, what everybody knew, you know, uh, um, there were surprises, I think, for everyone. It goes into themes of, of racism, mm-hmm. um, exploitation, white privilege, and I think those are very, um, and it goes beyond my story. Well, that's yeah. the thing. Instead of it being still this very specific story, and it is mm-hmm. a specific story, but it does broaden to become a universal story of the exploitation of indigenous artists and 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 people, and people in general. And so it, it does become something else than it started as a viewer. Yes, yes. No, it, it was deliberately... It, it is an unusual shape for a documentary, and it is, but it was done deliberately, and it was again following the the particular the particularities of this extremely powerful story, and in that in that respect that you've just described, I think it's what uh, uh, we always hope to achieve with with a story, what one would always hope to achieve telling a story, which is that you find a specific tale that speaks to something more universal. Right. And for instance, this so this this film launched uh, uh, at Hot Docs in Toronto a month ago, and it's going to come out uh, theatrically. We should mention uh, on June fourteenth as well, at uh, uh, in in various cities across the country. There are no fakes. dot com, yeah. and it has also started. Uh, um, I'm I'm gratified to say being uh, uh, picked up internationally. It's it's uh, selling, for instance, just this week to different Scandinavian countries. And and it's it's gratifying, <clears throat> apart from you know selling a film, but just just to see that the story really resonates in in far flung places mm-hmm. that have no particular connection or or experience with with Thunder Bay, where our where our tale kind of comes to to its climax. Just for instance, and you've described this as your darkest film, 
but the the last well, the disco film was quite dark. The, well, the hijacker still was about the murder of eight people. So you know, it, it is a, a different uh, kind of level, I guess. Well, the the again, it's, it's tempting and difficult not to not once you start blabbing about this, not to kind of go. And then, do you, yeah. can you believe this? Could you believe this part? And I still feel that way about it. I I believe Kevin does as well. The the uh, um, but yes, the the kind of particular particularly horrible stuff that is unveiled as as we follow the trail that started with one fake painting with one you know questionable mm-hmm. painting to be diplomatic leads to to one thing or another i mean as kevin himself says in the film you know uh, every every uh, stir- stone he unturned in his search you know un- un- unearthed seven more stones and uh they're I don't know. I don't know if I can keep this stone analogy going. Darker <laughs> and it's, it's more and more stones yeah. every time I say it. Did, did you ever feel like you'd get to the end of this? I'm still not at the end yeah. of it. It's mm. still ongoing. You know, I, now that the film is being seen, I'm getting more and more letters and, right. you know, I'm finding out more. Um, you know, I saw a clip of uh, Justin Trudeau today. He said, Canadians, uh, Canada can and must do better. And I think through hearing these stories um, of indigenous people and their truths, um, it, it's, it's a way for us to, to learn and find our path towards truth and reconciliation. And Jamie's, the art of this, this film is, is Jamie presenting the story in a way that is accessible. But I think um, for Canadians to connect with artists who are telling their truths like Laurie Blondeau and Rebecca Belmore, Robert Houle, um, Kent Monkman. It's a way for us to learn what has happened in the past and how to be aware and educate ourselves and understand and take action. And I see this film as, a, as an action. Jamie, was there anything that had to be left out? It seems like there's so much material that, I mean, there must be things that were left out, but for whatever reason. The the uh, uh, an editor I worked with early earlier on um, told me the expression. We, you hit a point in the editing, and then he said, and he actually used to have a, a little plastic baby that he put on the on the speaker. He said, "Okay, it's time to start killing the baby." Oh, <laughs> and, and actually, it's a terrible. Of course, I was yeah. making films on disco and things where, yeah. where jokes like that were. Right. Now, now that I've entered in such a grim realm, you know, it could be that and could, a father that for could the be third act, time. That could be Act Three. Yeah. Uh, uh, the uh, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, why do I keep coming back to this yeah. number? Um, in any case, the... Remember he said they would edit this if things went horribly wrong? Uh, yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> Put a little... Could that... Asterisk. Okay, <laughs> yeah. good. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, um, you always have stuff. Uh, right. uh, you know, the process, or, or my process with documentaries is, is you, you, you shoot, you cut long, you, you start by assembling everything you think might be good. So you, you end up with exactly a four-hour cut. Exactly, you wind film, up with yeah. the start often with a four-hour assembly, indeed, heading towards a feature hour-long product. And in, in this thing, in this story in particular, there, was, uh, there, were, there were many things which I had thought there would be more of. I thought, actually, I, I've been gratified to hear, indeed, from, from including from some of the, the artists you mentioned earlier uh, uh, who have seen the film, 
uh, Rebecca Belmore and and uh, Laurie Blondo, among others, have said have have praised the film for its representation of Morisot and his biography. So that has been uh, uh, very gratifying. Because in fact, just for instance, I had actually planned on having much longer uh, sections, biographical sections of Morisot. But it's one of the mysteries of editing. What will what what will sustain? You know what will what will sustain? And and there was so much story in this, so many great characters, so many twists and turns. There were there were phrases that you see. It was it was even though Kevin had had no editorial say in this in this film, it was very sneaky of him to offer his services as composer to the film. Uh, right. Who would turn down an original score yeah. by Kevin Hearn? A luxury, you know, <laughs> yeah. you never get in, you know, in the in the meager documentary world. I probably will never get again. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've been spoiled. I'll, let me tell you. But it also enabled him to kind of see certain cuts of the right. film that the average subject would not say. He could. He saw it, but he could not say anything about it. But I could uh, say uh, I could say things, but he didn't have to listen. Yeah, that what, was okay. going to change. Yeah, there, that's pretty yeah, well. Yeah, that's yeah. about it. So, so uh, you know, there there was stuff that I know, just just phrases. There's such characters and such such kind of there there were some real strings and and kind of cycles of expletives that some of the characters uh, uh, launched into. They, it gets so vituperative between these two factions, and they're they're kind of like poetic gems of of bile. Yeah. Just so <laughs> the, 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 the two, the two <laughs> factions are uh, people who. Uh, were interested in selling these, what possibly are fake Morisos, and then the people who say no, those are fakes. And I mean, there are websites. If you oh, Google these, these factions take on at each other, and you know, just as as Kevin, I wanted to take the audience on on a kind of trip, which which I experienced hearing about this film, and which which in a way Kevin experienced from you know sort of first dipping a toe in by buying a painting, and then getting dragged down by the leg into this whole swirling mess. And and as as it get goes from comical to dark, you see these factions are are slagging each other off online. Their their characters, some people are characterizing the other side as as Nazis. They are uh, there's a, a one site in particular that looks as one of my broadcasters described it as though it was made by the Unabomber. I think that's actually <laughs> selling the Unabomber short. Uh, but the uh, um, they uh, they're they're. There's, it turns out there's there's a 20 odd court cases of which this is merely one. This has been dragging on, and and these are people. People are putting each other in headlocks on courtroom steps. They're throwing bricks through gallery windows. I mean, this is not the kind of refined art world one thinks of when you know the, no. the classical music and uh, and espressos. There's a fascinating interview with uh, June Callwood. Yes. At the beginning of the film. From 1962. Yeah, from 1962. That's right. That's probably Morisot's first first, show. First show. At the Pollock Gallery. Yeah. Yeah. And and this footage is, (laughs) is, to me, I love scenes in films that explain, that amplify themes that are already sort of apparent. She can't pronounce any of the names she's like there there's something it, there was it's a complete... almost like an SCTV skit yeah. of of kind of and now we're going to talk to the latest indigenous art sensation yes. mr did I, did I get that wrong, sir? I mean, really, it, there yeah. is. A, I'm trying to think of old Peter Cook and Dudley Moore routines right. like that, and she is just the quintessential kind of white Rosedale lady, 
you know, down on the gallery scene in the <laughs> 1960s. Oh, I'm sorry, I got wasn't that wrong. It, wasn't it amazing, though, seeing him as a young man and a young artist? Yes. And... Well, he was a rock star. Yeah. Right? This, a guy, this guy was a rock star. And, he, and he it was, is, that's right. Yeah, it, it's sort of hard to uh, overstate uh, the charisma that he had mm -hmm. and, and just this idea, this amount of claim. They called him the Picasso of the North. And he kind of lived up to the hype. That's right. In he, person. He, he uh, I mean, he really came from, from abject poverty uh, uh, up north in, in Beardmore where, where he grew up. And he, uh, and he suddenly, he suddenly was this, was this sensation, you know, exotified mightily, one, one might argue. But at the same time, you know, obviously given a platform and like any, any indigenous artist before him. He was celebrated uh, internationally, and and with that, I guess you know wealth and fame. And he did he did go on to lead a, a pretty wild rock star life, as rock stars do. No offense, Kevin, you're yeah. very proud. <laughs> uh, but his legacy is being tarnished by all of this, mm -hmm. and he deserves better. Absolutely, and, uh, absolutely. Hopefully, this film is one step in in um, making sure that he is um, protected and honored the way he should be. The film is called There Are No Fakes. Uh, it opens this weekend uh, in theaters across the country. Check your local listings because I imagine it will open sort of gradually across the country. That's right. It uh, starts June 14th. Yeah, right. in, in the coming weeks. And uh, eventually you'll be able to see it on television. You know, you, this is a film that I think you need to see. We're, we're, we talk a great deal in this country about truth and reconciliation. This is a film uh, that really exposes... Uh, is exploitation on a scale that is really quite astounding. Uh, thanks for coming in, Jamie Kastner. Thank Kevin you, Kevin Hearn. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Also, my thanks to Andre and the board.